The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning and welcome to Our Wild World. In the United States today, there are over 2,000 chimpanzees living in a variety of circumstances, from zoos, both accredited and non-accredited, laboratories and sanctuaries, to living as pets and performers under private ownership. While many of these chimpanzees enjoy appropriate care and management and, and the proper security, many do not. And further, there is very little known about these privately held animals, with relatively little communication between these chimpanzee communities. My guest today is Steve Ross, Director of Project Chimp Care at Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago, Illinois. With almost 15 years of experience studying animal behavior, Steve's focus has been research on how the inappropriate portrayal of chimpanzees in the popular media affects public attitudes and conservation of the species. Steve's knowledge through studying ape behavior and cognition has given him a unique insight into chimpanzees and how they interact with their environments and how best to support their complex needs and more so to support the scientific-based and decision-making approach to chimpanzee conversation. It's a great pleasure to have you here today. Welcome, Steve. Thank you very much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So it's a it's a, a subject matter I don't know a lot about. I do a lot of work in the wild. So once again, for my listeners, I met Steve at the recent PAWS Performing Animal Welfare Society conference. He gave an excellent presentation during his panel, and uh, we're going to talk about some of that today. So how about we begin with um, Steve, you giving us a little bit of your personal background and how that led to uh, how you got involved with chimpanzees and how you came to be with the Lincoln Park Zoo. Sure. Well, actually, it was from a very young age that I wanted to work with chimpanzees. I would say uh, around fifth grade, I decided that. Uh, but I grew up in Canada, and there's, there's frankly not a lot of chimpanzees in Canada. Uh, and I realized pretty early on that the aspect of chimpanzees that I was most interested in it was their welfare, sort of... Uh, caring about their welfare, trying to measure it, and ultimately improving it. But early on, uh, given that there was few chimpanzees in Canada, I worked actually with pigs. Uh, 
pigs, domestic pigs who would uh, eventually go on to be uh, pork and bacon, frankly, um, but whose lives were obviously compromised when they lived in factory farms. So I worked with scientists to devise ways that these pigs could be humanely housed and give them options for freedom while they were in farms. Wow. So I'm, I, I gather you're probably familiar with Temple Grandin and her cattle work. Absolutely. And, and that's some of the research that really inspired me very early on. Even though I knew eventually I wanted to work with chimpanzees, this work with pigs was very influential uh, for me in terms of the way that, that welfare could be sci- uh, studied in a scientific manner. So you, you started with pigs. You grew up in Canada. You said there were not many chimps there. And you had a passion for chimps at a very young age. How did that all come about to leap very quickly into chimpanzee welfare from pigs and very few uh, chimps in Canada? Oh, one of the things I studied when I was studying the pigs was the relationship between the mother pig, the sow, and her piglets. You know, one of the, the ways that a lot of piglets die is being crushed by their mom. And, and the reason why that is is because they live in such small housing, unfortunately. So we were trying to figure out ways that that relationship could be improved by building better housing for pigs. Which obviously still needs to happen. Absolutely. This is a very slow-moving train. Luckily, there are good people out there doing research that's influencing legislation, but uh, some countries are moving a little faster than others. And unfortunately, in the United States, farrowing crates, these very small areas where mothers have their babies, is still very legal in almost all of the United States. That's very distressing, and you know, it would be really wonderful, because we're going to focus on chimps today, but you've really uh, enlightened me on the connection between these two very different species. It would be great to have you back, and we could have a conversation about this. What I talk a lot about is the um, industrialization of our food farming and uh, disconnection, but that's a conversation for another day. But let's lead on. So, um, the relationship between piglets and pig, the sows and their piglets, how did that relate to chimps and their children? Well, it actually gave me the opportunity to then work in mother infant relationships with monkeys. I actually studied monkeys uh, in Puerto Rico, a, a colony of free ranging monkeys that lives in a, a small island called Cayo Santiago off the co- coast of Puerto Rico. And I studied the mother-infant relationships there, um, and I probably got that job because I knew a lot about mother-infant relationships from my, my pig work. But then once I got experience with a primate species, uh, such as these rhesus monkeys, uh, that gave me the opportunity to then get uh, jobs in animal facilities. And eventually, I got a job working as a research assistant studying chimpanzees actually at a laboratory in Texas. My goodness, you have just gone all over the map here. Um, this is this is astonishing, and we're. I would. I wish we had a whole lot more time. So, my eyes are. I have questions just firing off. So you've been studying relationships. Maybe give our audience a brief differentiation, a little explanation between uh, lower primates and higher primates, monkeys versus apes. Yeah, well, within the primate world, you can really easily differentiate between sort of two types of primate. There's the monkeys, which are most easily differentiated because they have tails, and apes, which don't have tails. And and the apes are actually just a small part of the primate order. They're only made up uh, really by five different types of apes, gorillas, 
chimpanzees, orangutans, bonobos, and of course humans. But there are also the lesser apes, or as they're called these days, the smaller apes, and those are gibbons and siamangs, which um, are of course an ape because they don't have a tail, but probably act a lot more like monkeys in many ways. That's, I just learned something new today. It's so obvious, tail versus no tail. Um, it, it, once you bring it up, it's, it's like being hit with a stoplight. Um, <laughs> thank you for that. So um, you did a lot of research with infant-mother relationships and uh, a lot of research in, let's call it captive, and the wholesale industrialization of these mammals and animals. So let's get into a little bit, because this is your specialty, natural behaviors versus captive behaviors. And then maybe a little bit into the implications for wild chimps in the future of apes and other mammals. So one of the things I did, uh, actually starting with my work in laboratories, uh, before I moved to the zoo world, was to uh, begin a sort of series of studies that, that tried to understand what the effect of captive circumstances is on their welfare and how can we improve that. So uh, obviously there's a range of different environments that animals such as chimpanzees can live in from relatively barren environments to ones that are very dynamic and engaging and what I wanted to know is what were the different characteristics of these environments that influenced the behavior of captive chimpanzees and, and how could we uh, adjust those settings to make their behavior as close to wild chimpanzee behavior or natural chimpanzee behavior as we could. So that leads us to a huge leap in our human historical perspective. And what leaps to mind immediately is Ivan the gorilla and his original circumstances in that concrete terrible box to pause intervening and getting him into a habitat. So it's really critical to understand behavior. So tell us a little more about that and maybe uh, segue into the zoo versus sanctuary. Uh, we learned a lot at pause that they are not the same thing and why providing this enrichment is so critical for us as humans, not just to make the chimpanzee life better, but what we've learned about it. Right. So, I mean, it's terribly important to think very carefully about the environment for species like chimpanzees. Of course, it's important for all animals, uh, but especially maybe for species that are cognitively advanced, like elephants, like dolphins, and especially like great apes as well. And so when we consider environments, whether they're in sanctuaries or zoos or other settings, what we're trying to do is at least functionally replicate the types of choices that they might have or the type of opportunities that they might have in the wild. And so in many cases, those environments won't look like wild uh, environments uh, in a number of characteristics, but in other ways they might function like or provide opportunities for these apes to do the types of activities that they would in the wild. The easiest example you might imagine is providing a chimpanzee the opportunity to climb. In the wild, chimpanzees spend a lot of time climbing up in the trees uh, and moving back and forth at, at pretty, high, uh, pretty high heights. I've seen them up to two or three hundred feet in the air in the wild. Um, and so it's very important and maybe obvious probably to most of your listeners that captive environments have to elicit this side of natural behavior from chimpanzees. Without those opportunities, they're really missing out on sort of a key and fundamental aspect of their natural behavioral repertoire. It brings me to a, a poignant point that Ed had made, 
at at the pause conference and what Scott Blaze had talked about choice and space and how much we've learned and how long it's taken us to create these environments in in the zoo environment without even getting into the private um, privately held animals and he had said that understanding and providing these environments that give the, the animals especially primates as you had said of higher cognitive understanding the ability to um, do what they do and how important that is for us to provide that I'm not sure a lot of our listeners are I think a lot of people here are getting more aware of this but um, let's spend a little more time about this because it really is critical most zoos don't have the space the height the width or the dimension depth to be able to give a chimpanzee 200 feet of climbing space so how do we make up for that well i think i think you've raised some critical points and and frankly i'd say that many sanctuaries don't have that space either so this is definitely not necessarily a zoo problem i would i would assert i think it's a it's a captive environment problem no matter what your sort of philosophical intentions are it's it's a problem the fact that we'll never really be able to replicate what a wild chimpanzee has because wild chimpanzees of course range over hundreds of miles over the course of their lifetime and that's just simply not feasible in any sort of um, urbanized environment uh, in North America so what we try to focus on is what uh, specific characteristics of environments that we can replicate to provide them with the same type of opportunities so here's an example that that maybe uh, initially seems far-fetched but you can imagine in some environments, and, and my zoo is one of them, Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago, where chimpanzees have the opportunity to use touchscreen computers. And this seems very unnatural, I think, to many people, and, and some people I hear question, question this uh, use of, of computer technology because when would chimpanzees ever use computers in the wild? And, of course, the answer is never. But computers like this provide some very real functional opportunities for chimpanzees that, that in some ways can mimic their natural behaviors. Chimpanzees have to make lots of different types of choices. They're constantly uh, faced with facing opportunities to make quantifications and differentiations. And as a result, uh, the life of a wild chimpanzee is highly mentally stimulating, in, in some ways very stressful in this regard. And so what we try to do is to provide this mental stimulation to chimpanzees that live at our zoo in different ways. Um, obviously, we won't want them to face potentially dangerous situations, whether it be leopard predators and so on. So we sort of challenge them mentally by providing them with tasks that they voluntarily partake in in a group setting. They're never separated from their social group. And they, 95% uh, of the time, choose to use these computers, engage in them. They get rewarded when, when tasks are right. Uh, and as a result, this has very natural outcomes, even though it's not a natural behavior at all. That's simply fascinating. Just amazing. So in captivity, we re we re excuse me, my tongue, we've <laughs> removed some of the stressors having to the security, for instance. There's no predators after them. They don't necessarily have to fight or seek food. So they need still to um, occupy that mental room is what you're saying. That's so right. by giving them a choice, sort of like kindergartners and smart technology, we're giving them something that may not be natural, but still performs that same function. It gives them enrichment. That's, that's exactly right. This is a form of mental enrichment. I think often when people talk about enrichment, sort of uh, supplementing their environment, 
Um, they think about adding maybe toys or other things into their environment that they might want to play with. But of course, it's far more complex than simply providing uh, physical toys into their environment. And what we want to do is challenge them. And as you mentioned earlier, providing choices for animals is particularly important, whether it's the choice to go outside, the choice to uh, find new social mates, or in this case, the, the, the simple act of making choices via various activities. This is amazing. So you've, you've really highlighted in just this first section of this program, so I'm so excited to get into more, just uh, some basic um, understandings of what enrichment means and what we can provide for when we remove them from their natural habitat and um, some really important points that a lot of stimulation is mental stimulation and I think a lot of us people can really relate to that. So we're out of time for this first section. We're going to need to cut away from to a break. Once again, my guest is Steve Ross. He is the director of the Project Chimcare at Lincoln Park Zoo. You can learn more about the zoo at uh, their website. Is it LincolnParkZoo.org or LPZ.org? LPZoo.org. LPZoo.org. And there's a amazing amount of information so we'll be right back and stick with us wildlife no wild no life big scary beautiful predators are in danger without them our rivers dry up our forests don't grow our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling. 
whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. The world we live in has become a crazy place. Poverty is at an all-time high in the wealthiest nation on earth. We keep calling on government to save us with new programs. And now we have more people using food stamps than any time in our history. This problem continues to get worse. The answer to poverty is in our homes, churches, and communities, and through our children. Get the answers from The Mickey Ellison Show, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss, and my guest today is Steve Ross. And we're having a fascinating conversation and learning so much about chimpanzees, not only about their wild habitats, but what we learn by keeping them in captivity and what we learn about uh, providing for their welfare and uh, what that has taught us. But let's get into what could be a little bit of a sticky wicket in animal rights, animal welfare, personhood, non-human beings. Is it humane for us humans with everything that we know about chimpanzees today and all that you talked about in the first section? Is it humane for us to keep chimpanzees in captivity? I think I think differentiating whether it's humane to keep a given species in captivity of course, as you mentioned, is a very sticky uh, topic. It's a very complicated one. And the, the way that I address it as a behavioral scientist is trying to use science to objectively differentiate whether the, an animal is able to thrive in that environment, if we're able to meet their behavioral needs. And I use all sorts of different types of methods, whether it's physiological measures of stress hormones through their uh, fecal matter, all the way to behavioral measures uh, and comparing their behavior, say, to wild chimpanzees. And so I think there's a lot of different types of methods you can use to assess the degree to which an animal is able to adapt to a captive environment. What we also have to keep in mind, I think, when we think about these topics, is that I think some people have um, a misguided perception that these chimpanzees are taken from the wild and put in captive situations and therefore are somehow missing uh, wild situations. This, of course, is, is not the case, at least in the case of chimpanzees, where they haven't come from wild from the wild into North America since 1975. So it's been quite a few years, and only a, a relatively small number of the current living population in North America would be considered wild-born. So this is, this is just something I mentioned to, to sort of um, tease through one of the misperceptions there. I think that's a very important point that you brought up. Thank you. I appreciate that because it's not a question I would have thought to ask. So you did um, stipulate North America, so that is sort of leaves by implication that elsewhere it may not be the same case. And we do know that chimps are still being taken from the wild, but at least it's not happening here in the U.S. anymore. So 
just a quick question. Uh, gorillas and uh, have learned to communicate through sign um, and and speak. And we know from some of the research that's been done that some of the gorillas have been able to relate their experiences of being taken from the wild. Do chimps have the same capability to communicate with us? Well, the 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 whole field of communication with apes, I think, has has really been a rocky one over the past six or seven decades. As you mentioned, there are gorillas, and of course there's chimpanzees and, and bonobos as well that have learned to communicate uh, on a human level, either with signing or through lexigrams. And uh, through the 60s and 70s, this was a really hot topic of, of study, uh, trying to understand whether they had the mental uh, abilities to communicate. But I think, uh, for the most part, over the past few decades, people have gotten a little bit away from the study of, of sign language with apes, mostly because it's, it's, it's in many ways not fair to the chimpanzees or, or to the gorillas. Good point. So we're asking them to communicate on our level and not their own level. That's what you said just made me think of, that all this time spent on making them communicate on our level was about us. That's absolutely right, and I think and I think recently people have started to get that a little bit more. It's it's actually quite akin to these other um, experiments that went on in the fifties and sixties, where they were interested whether chip how chimpanzees would behave when raised by humans. Not only the language aspect, but the behavioral aspect. But of course, that wasn't fair either because they were taken away from their own mother and forced to adapt to our own culture. And this problem exists today, even because of course. Uh, the 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 sale and the purchase and the ownership of chimpanzees as pets is still really a problem in North America, and these chimpanzees have no opportunity to be with their own mother and then suffer the consequences of those decisions by humans for the rest of their lives. So once again, you've highlighted some really important critical information there, and you summarized it beautifully. That a lot of what we've done in the past has been about us. And hopefully it's helped us learn that some of that is not important, it's moot, that understanding chimps as chimps for chimps and by chimps is more important, but that does lead us into this issue that you just talked about, having chimps as pets. Not a good idea. Tell us why. Yeah, it's it's shocking to me in many ways that here we are in, in 2014 and we're still having this conversation that chimpanzees um, have been used as pets for decades now, not only in the United States, but around the world. And unfortunately today, in the United States, there is no federal legislation at all that would prevent such a thing. There are a few laws in a municipal level, and it's even just a handful of states that have outlawed this. But for the most part, this is still a legal practice. It's still possible for an individual to pay between thirty-five dollars and $50,000 to buy a pet chimpanzee that's been taken away from its mother and unfortunately, in these cases, while that chimpanzee might be cute and cuddly for a couple of years while you dress it up in diapers, it inevitably leads to disaster. Not only the animal welfare aspect in which this animal will suffer psychological damage uh, in many ways, and we've recently published some, some research to show the degree of that damage, but also just in terms of human health and safety. We all remember the event in Connecticut several years ago when a woman was very tragically mauled by uh, her neighbor's pet chimpanzee. And the fact of the matter is, is that these are wild animals and really can't exist in a private resident situation. We can't provide for them. Uh, as you just made so uh, very, very clear, 
the mental stimulation, the enrichment. It's not just about toys. It's not a dog. It's not a cat. They have a very different cognitive level, way beyond that, much more like us, but they are not us. They're not humans. Um, there is a relationship, so um, you've made it really clear, It's, it's and I thank you for that. So um, this brings me into... Um, You'd mentioned the science, the research, the behavior understanding, and Lincoln Park Zoo. Let's get a little bit into that. Lincoln Park Zoo is one of the leading zoos um, in terms of how they use the science-based and behavioral-based approach, and that's why you're there. So you had a lot to do with the designing of the Regenstein Center for African Apes and your extensive background, not only with chimps but or chimpanzees, maybe it's not fair to say chimps, um, <laughs> along with other mammals. Tell us how this all came together and why it's so exciting at Lincoln Park Zoo. Well, for I was, chimps, not just for us. <laughs> not just for me. Um, but in, in 2000, uh, the year 2000, I was hired uh, by Lincoln Park Zoo uh, in a very unique way. I, I think probably I'm one of the only people maybe in the world who was, who was hired for this purpose. I was hired to do scientific research, mostly behavioral research, on the apes, both the chimpanzees and gorillas, and that research was going to be used in the design process for their new ape facility. So they recognized immediately, long before the design was made, that we had to understand what the apes were doing and use that in order to build an effective design. So I conducted a, a, a wide range of behavioral studies along with my colleagues at the zoo uh, to try to understand a lot about ape preferences, what they preferred and what they liked, where they liked to spend their time, and use that to uh, work with the architects when we designed the building, the Regenstein Center for African Apes, which opened in 2004. The other big aspect of the Regenstein Center for African Apes that, that you touched on there is sort of the degree to which science is built into the design. Not only was it built by science, but it's really built for science as well. We understood that the role of the zoo is, is much more than simply providing a place for people to see animals. It's also a place where we can grow our knowledge about animals and adapt our management of animals through science. And so as such, at the building, there is a lot of scientific presence. There's a lot of ability to do science within the building. I mentioned the touch screens that are provided for both the gorillas and the chimpanzees. Um, but also there, there is uh, observation towers where we can get away from the animals, get out of the way of the visitors, and uh, take basically every day we collect behavioral data on every animal from the day they're born till the, till the day they unfortunately pass away. And this information is extremely important for us to be able to adapt their environment to best meet their behavioral needs. That represents, everything you just said represents a huge, huge quantum leap in zoo philosophy. I agree. I, I think it is a leap. I think it's very different. And uh, I think these types of ideas are, are only recently sort of catching hold in the zoo environment. And especially when I say uh, the zoo environment, I mean especially the accredited zoos that are really recognizing the importance not only of conservation and of education, but of science and research to inform things like animal welfare. And I'm really proud to say that, that Lincoln Park Zoo, I think, is really at the vanguard of, of this movement. They've got one of the largest conservation and science departments uh, in all of the accredited zoo population, despite the fact we're a relatively small zoo. We have departments studying not only uh, behavior, such as what I'm doing, but also things like endocrinology and epidemiology and population biology, all with the goal 
of using science to affect the policy that affects animals, both in captivity and in the wild. This is amazing, and it makes me smile. And once again, I have to go back to why this conference and my attendance there was so eye-opening. Because, as I've said on previous shows, I did not give the um, attention due to the captive issue because I've been very focused on the wild. So my eyes are continually being opened and by having guests such as you on the program. It's, it's astonishing the leaps we have made. And um, let's just, a little, a little clarification, accredited versus non-accredited zoos. It, it's an important differentiation, actually, because um, I think many people, when they might go to a, well, it could be a sanctuary or a zoo, want to know whether that's a good place or not. They want to know if that's a place that's worth their support, either through attendance or, or even through donations. And within the zoo community, at least in the past several decades, that process for visitors has become much easier through accreditation by the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, AZA. And when um, a visitor might attend an AZA-accredited zoo, they know that that zoo is held to certain standards. Now, most importantly, at least for, for people like me and probably for you, uh, that means that their standards of animal care are held to certain, certain levels and they get inspected to make sure that those levels of animal care are maintained. But it also means other things that are maybe a little less exciting but maybe as important for the animals' lives as well. They're held to certain financial standards, that certain sustainability standards to make sure that that zoo is going to be around a while. It's not going to go bankrupt and then have to unload uh, all their animals at some point. So accreditation really uh, is a way of differentiating between those zoos that have put effort into things like education, conservation, and research, and not those that are simply around uh, for entertainment. Good point. Thank you for clarifying that. So another thing that was brought up at the PAUSE conference that enlightened me was this concept of zoo versus sanctuary and that some zoos, as you just said, are more for entertainment, whether accredited or non-accredited, and that the goal of the AZA and accreditation is to provide everything you just talked about and that the, the zoo becomes a forever home because it prov provides sanctuary where some zoos are not actually about sanctuary, so therefore a need for sanctuary that does provide what an organization like Lincoln Park Zoo provides. You know, it, it's, it is an interesting situation because I think in some ways the, the lines between sanctuaries and zoos are actually blurring. I mean, you mentioned right there that, that some zoos are providing sanctuary for animals in need. I, I know several zoos, at least in the chimpanzee world, that have taken on ex-pets and ex-performers and provided them uh, with proper homes where they can live with other chimpanzees and learn to be a chimpanzee again. And this is a role that, at least traditionally, is, is held by sanctuaries. But the, uh, the other thing to, to remember when we're talking about uh, chimpanzee moves between facilities and so on is the way that um, accredited zoos participate in what's called cooperative population management. And so, for instance, I'm the chair of something called the Chimpanzee Species Survival Plan. And what this group does is manage the entire population of chimpanzees living in accredited zoos. Not just one zoo and not just another, but the entire North American population. And we manage this population to ensure a couple of things. In one case, we're looking at maintaining the genetics and demography of that population to keep it healthy into the future. But at least for chimpanzees, one of the main priorities is to maintain social well-being health. So, for instance, if an individual, several individuals die at a zoo, of old age and that group becomes very small 
we need a cooperative management plan to move chimpanzees between zoos that can help maintain all chimpanzee well-being, not just at one zoo or another. We also need cooperative management to ensure that breeding is kept at a sustainable level. We don't want to breed babies just to make babies. We want to breed babies to maintain genetic diversity because this ultimately can help maintain a population that's genetically healthy as well. That brings up an interesting point, and thanks for clarifying that. And we're going to take another break here shortly, and I'd like to get a bit more into this cooperative management plan, which we addressed at the beginning of sort of the right hand knowing what the left hand is doing and it's connected by a brain. Um, But what happens in, let's say, a localized chimpanzee colony group social network in one zoo when some die and you have to move them? What does what does that do to the to the chimpanzees themselves? No, absolutely. The chimpanzee transfer process is something that is uh, difficult. It's something that has to be thought through and is thought through with, believe me, weeks and months of planning for every move. Many chimpanzees spend their entire life at a given zoo. In fact, there's a chimpanzee that just passed away at my zoo just about exactly a year ago named Keo. He spent um, his entire life at the zoo. He was the oldest male chimpanzee living in North America at the time of his death. He was 55 years old and lived a, a, a really unbelievable life. Um, but in some cases, as you mentioned, there might be a need for a group of chimpanzees that has shrunk uh, because of just natural uh, accession. And so in these situations, we want to do what's best for all the chimpanzees. So we would make decisions to move chimpanzees that are for their own best welfare. And so this is something that we meet about and take very carefully into consideration. So. Um- We've got, you know, actually, we we don't have that much time left in this section. So once again, my guest is Steve Ross, chimpanzee expert. He's the director of Chimp Care and um, very critical in the design of the Regenston African Ape Center at the Lincoln Park Zoo. So stick with us. We have uh, a lot more to cover and uh, we'll be right back. Are you a real sports fan? Get ready to talk football and anything else sports with Kwame Lasseter, formerly with the Arizona Cardinals, San Diego Chargers, and St. Louis Rams. Kwame's got the experience, so he's prepared to talk sports with you every week on Kwame Lasseter's Sports Talk. It's on the Voice America Sports Network every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. Get ready for unpredictable fun and sometimes a sarcastic look at the world of sports. That's Kwame Lasseter's Sports Talk on the Voice America Sports Network. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The Wild Effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable 
Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. We all want peace. We all desire a more meaningful life. We work hard to achieve these things, but at what avail? The key is authentic living with Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of the great spiritual experts of today and will provide wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your own I am. Your authenticity can give you miraculous gifts, but you have to know how to get there. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the 7th Wave Network. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. Welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss. You're listening to Our Wild World and my fascinating guest, Steve Ross, who works with chimpanzees, behavioral science, research, and an amazing quantum leap approach in zoo care and philosophy of these uh, amazing animals. So right before the break, uh, we were talking a little bit about chimps moving between institutions, cooperative management between institutions to care for the chimps' needs, not just human needs. So, Steve, you'd said um, Keo had passed away, the oldest chimp that was born and raised in captivity, lived at Lincoln Park Zoo his entire life. What happened? What did you see and what did you learn as a person and what did you learn about the chimpanzees, the grief aspect, and, and help us understand that other animals of higher cognitive ability do feel grief, do have emotions. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've come a long way, I think, about understanding, especially for, for an animal like a chimpanzee, their emotional capabilities. I think maybe it's easier to understand emotions in a species that's so closely related to us, like chimpanzees. And we know not only from, from what I saw with Keo, but from other studies, that chimpanzees do experience what we would call grief. So they experience loss, and they, they more, more than likely have memories of individuals long after they've gone. So when chimp- uh, a chimpanzee named Keo died at our zoo last year, he was part of a relatively small group uh, in, a, in an off-exhibit area uh, of our Regenstein Center for African Apes. But you could clearly see some of the differences in behavior uh, for the chimpanzees in the year, in the days after he died. They would often uh, look for him quite a bit uh, and would often be very quiet. We didn't see any real big activity in the days and weeks following his death. He was the only male in the group. In many ways, he was the leader of that group. And uh, as much grief as the care staff and all the scientists there were feeling when Keo passed, I also think it was being experienced by the chimpanzees as well. That's, that's amazing. So you mentioned an interesting point just there very quickly, off-exhibit. 
uh, explain some of that for us, that not everything you see is up front at a zoo, that there is a lot going on behind the scenes. Absolutely. In almost every zoo, almost every enclosure that one sees at the zoo, there is an off-exhibit area. Now, Regenstein Center for African Apes sort of took this even a step further. Um, what we built uh, were three public exhibits where the visitors could watch and learn from uh, dynamic ape groups, both chimpanzees and gorillas. But we also took the time to build a dynamic uh, environment behind the scenes that we could provide groups with some time to not be around visitors. Um, we haven't really found any scientific evidence of negative visitor effects in our building. Animals have the choice to get away from visitors within their enclosures. At the same time, we like the idea that our groups could be moved to a separate environment where they could have a bit of a quieter time. And in our environments, you can move the groups between different enclosures. So everyone really could have a turn back there. Most of the time, we kept our older chimps, our sort of retirement home chimps, in that area where they could sort of leisurely go about their business and and, and meet with zoo staff and scientists, um, but, but, but away from the, the, the crowds that are often associated with uh, the, the more public enclosures. So that brings up another interesting point. I, I, my, to my listeners, this conversation is just firing so many thoughts um, that I'm trying to keep up. Uh, you just mentioned another thing, the, the chimpanzees having the choice to be uh, in front of visitors or not. What does Lincoln Park Zoo do in terms of keeping visitors behaving appropriately? Um, an amazing thing happened, actually, when we built the new building. If I could take a second to describe this, that in the old building that preceded the Regenstein Center for African Apes, it was a bit of a dark building, mostly steel and concrete. Um, and we had signs all over the place on the windows to not tap the glass. I remember that. Yeah, the people would come in and they'd see these signs. But inevitably, people would tap the glass. And we always felt that this was probably disturbing the animals quite a bit because in those environments, there was not really any room for the animals to remove themselves from the, from the view of the visitors. In the new building, the Regenstein Center for African Apes, there are plenty of areas where if the animals want to engage with visitors, and often actually they do, they can do so. But if they don't, there are plenty of corners and nooks and crannies where they can get away if they so choose. And interestingly, we don't have any signs up at all that say anything about not tapping the glass. And in our visitor studies, in which we follow visitors and record their behaviors, we found that this sort of disruptive tapping of the glass and disruptive behavior has gone down by over 300%. That means wow. it's just a quarter of what it used to be. So it's, it's, it's quite an amazing change, and I think it has a lot to do with the naturalization of the space. People don't feel the need to sort of interrupt they feel much more comfortable in that space and just being around animals that look like they're in behaving naturally. So it really has gone a long way to changing the experience, that it's not about gaining the animal's attention, throwing things at it, tapping the glass, um, wanting the animal to see you, the visitor, but much more about uh, engaging and understanding chimpanzees for chimpanzee's sake. You've got it exactly right, and, and to follow up on the visitor behavior study, we also did visitor survey studies in which we asked people several sets of questions when they were in the old building, when they were in the new building, when they exited, when they entered, and so we've got really solid scientific evidence to show that people who visit the new facility have increased awareness 
of the needs of chimpanzees and an increased appreciation for wildlife in general. And this was really exciting, especially because we know that there are critics out there about the ability of zoos to provide educational experiences, to provide them with increased appreciation of wildlife in wild places. And I think this at least begins to open that conversation up to say that well-designed buildings in zoos that are seeking scientific input have that ability or at least have that potential. Well, this is great. It's very hopeful. Um, I grew up in Chicago. I grew up going to Lincoln Park Zoo, and I think that's probably what, not Lincoln Park Zoo specifically, the zoo experience, the way it used to be, had a big effect on my um, adult life and not wanting to go to zoos because of the kinds of cages, habitats, bars that it, I, I felt it wasn't um, a natural behavior. So you've really enlightened me and our listeners to how big a quantum, quantum leap we really have taken in terms of those zoos that are participating in this behavioral approach and the scientific approach that it's not about entertainment and, and you're not going to find uh, chimps being bred and babies being sold uh, and, and it's not about a money thing anymore. So that leads me into um, Lincoln Park Zoo and it's a very, and your progressive chimpanzee a multi-institutional management plan and the species survival plan of chimpanzees in the wild. Help us connect those two together. Right, so we we do sort of two connected but disparate sort of approaches to conservation. There is uh, what we call XC2 conservation, and that's dealing with captive populations. And sort of I describe that a little bit in 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 uh, talking about how we manage the captive zoo population as a whole, as its own population, and try to maintain its genetic uh, health. Try to make sure that it is as healthy as possible, almost as a a hedge against extinction in the wild. If things go terribly bad in the wild, and frankly it's headed that way for many species, including chimpanzees, that at least this population will be genetically healthy. That's one aspect. But but many more, uh, much more effort, I would say, is placed in 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 situ conservation work that zoos do with wild populations, and in this case, wild chimpanzees. So, for instance, Lincoln Park Zoo has a full-time field scientist. He spends almost all year in the Republic of Congo working with wild chimpanzees and wild gorillas, protecting their habitat, working with logging companies to adapt their environment so that they're not uh, terribly decimating the environment that these wild populations of apes live. So a modern zoo, such as the ones that you're starting to describe, are ones that are involved in conservation in a number of different ways, not simply funding a small project here and there, but actively involved with their staff and with their resources and with educating the public about what's going on in the wild as well. That's a really critical point you just mentioned, and I thank you for that because I couldn't have said it any better, that today conservation and captivity, as I've said so many times from uh, being enlightened at the pause conference how closely related they are and that it is important and what I'm doing on our wild world by having guests like Steve is to help our listeners understand just how deeply connected what happens in captivity is going to affect the wild so that uh, we've got about six minutes left and you've got an exciting project and one that started in 2009 at Lincoln Park Zoo, which was very instrumental to you personally um, by being there, uh, Project Chimp Care. Tell us what that is. 
Well, it all sort of started uh, when I, as the species survival plan coordinator, sort of the person in charge of, of the zoo population uh, of chimps, started receiving calls from people who had pet chimps and who wanted to get rid of them and maybe just, you know, dump them in a zoo or, or move them back to the breeder and wanted some advice on that. And I started to realize that this was actually quite a bit big problem. And I had many colleagues in the sanctuary world and, and different people who knew a lot about this problem, but no one had the time or the resources to quantify that problem, to really get a hold of what was the situation out there with pet chimpanzees, who was breeding them, who has these pet chimpanzees, which chimpanzees are being used for entertainment, movies and, and, and commercials and so on. So we um, applied for and received a grant through the Arcus Foundation to start Project Chimp Care. And it started with a nationwide survey of all the chimpanzees that lived in the United States. I spent, as, as well as my research assistant, a lot of time in rental cars traveling all around the United States, finding all of these chimpanzees, whether they lived in labs or someone's backyard or in an unaccredited roadside zoo or in places like sanctuaries and accredited zoos. And all of that sort of allowed us to sort of have a better understanding of the scope of the problem when it comes to privately owned chimpanzees. And actually, you can see the, the results of that census on our website at www.chimpcare.org. And there's an interactive map. And you can actually see where all the chimpanzees are in, in North America. Wow. But, but, but from that, we, we sort of started to understand that this was a very big problem. And it wasn't just an animal welfare problem, although that's the part that I'm most interested in. And it had a lot to do with the way that people looked at chimpanzees, the way they perceived them. So we proceeded to do some experiments to understand how the public views that species when they see them in commercials and movies, often dressed up and doing sort of frivolous things. And the bottom line from that was that, uh, not surprising to many of us, I think, that people tended to see these chimpanzees as not being endangered in the wild when they saw them in these situations and that they might actually make a good pet. The fact that seeing a chimpanzee in a movie could affect conservation values was a very important leap in terms of our combating those practices, speaking out against those practices. Wow. I could go, I could go on and on, and we don't have a lot of time left in this show. So um, as we said during the break, I hope you come back and we can carry on this conversation because there's so much more to be talked about, the whole aspect of uh, – chimps and exotic animals in media and hopefully we'll be having some further guests on our wild world talking about that specifically and the need do we need since you brought it up here do we need really to use live wild animals in entertainment media uh, commercials movies yeah popular media commercials movies the answer at this point is no i think Many years ago, when people would justify something like that, they would say, well, there's really no other way. If we write a character like a chimpanzee into a movie, there's no other way to do it. But we're way beyond that. For anyone who's seen uh, the recent Planet of the Apes movies knows that we're easily able to represent very lifelike-looking chimpanzees uh, using computer-generated technology. And we can tell those stories. Those stories can be important for conservation. They can be done in ways that can actually help chimpanzees but we don't want to do them at the risk of hurting the actual chimpanzees that might be in quote-unquote actors in these, in these parks. And we know a lot now through various bits of research, some of which was done by the Lincoln Park Zoo, that chimpanzees who are raised as actors and around humans a lot early in their life grow on with 
really psychological difficulties, social difficulties, so that even when they move to a place like a sanctuary, life is very difficult for them because in many ways they're not even sure if they're humans or chimpanzees or, or what they are. I can imagine it would be a very confusing way to live a life. Yes, it's, we call it the Mowgli syndrome. It's, it's, a, it's, huh. a, it's a transition between two worlds that becomes very difficult. Absolutely. So just quickly, there wasn't a single live ape used in Planet of the Apes, the most recent version. The most recent two movies didn't use a single ape. That's, uh, that's amazing. It's a really big step. Because I have I've tended to avoid watching some of these films um, that star chimps or uh, tigers like Life of Pi or something yep. like that because um, they're done so well. I was mistakenly thinking that they had used live animals. So we'll get into that more on another episode. So another reason to stay tuned to our wild world. So we've got just a couple minutes left. Um, tell us a little bit more, um, or I have a question for you. What do you think the future will be for chimpanzees with the knowledge that you've given us today and the knowledge that you bring to this field behavior research even to industrializing our food which we don't for chimps but pigs do you think what do you think the future of chimps in captivity will be do you think there will come a point where it won't happen i think it, i think there's some reason that chimpanzees can be a really beneficial part of our society here in North America. And the only way I think you can justify that is, number one, to provide environments in which they can thrive. Not only survive, but thrive. That means they have to be in very large social groups, in very dynamic environments. And they have to be able to provide other things. We have to be able to use the, their presence to educate people about the real issues, which are the conservation issues in Africa. There's no way chimpanzees are justified to be in captive situations as pets, as performers, and we know now in recent years that they're really not going to be used in, in biomedical research anymore. So all that's left is through conservation education. I think that's the only present justification for captive chimpanzees. This has been an amazing, an amazing eye-opening conversation, and you're so exciting to talk to. And I hope our listeners can feel the passion that just comes through the airwaves here. But unfortunately, we are out of time today. So, Steve, thank you so much. I, I do hope you come back and we can do another episode. I'm very happy to. Because I would love to get a, a lot more into that whole industrialized uh, food processing concept and a little more about chimps, but, you know, the rest of the animals that we so much take for granted in this culture that we have and what is also changing. So that's it for today. My guest, Steve Ross from Lincoln Park Zoo. This is Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, 
please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 